Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today we'll be talking about hurricanes and two amazing, very different books that feature this terrifying facet of nature. The seed for this episode was planted several weeks ago by my mom, who I've learned over the years to heed when it comes to reading recommendations. She'd started reading Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Zora Neale Hurston right around the time Hurricane Harvey was devastating the Texas coast, and was telling me the story of how her works went out of publication for 30 years until she was rediscovered by Alice Walker, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Color Purple. There's a great NPR article that I'd like to share with you linked in the show notes, for Intersections, a series on artists and their inspirations, when Walker spoke with NPR's Vertime Grovesner. In 1975, writer Alice Walker wrote an essay about her search for Zora Zora Neale Hurston. In the process, Walker helped lift from obscurity the work and life story of the most widely published black woman author of the 1930s Harlem Renaissance. Walker, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Color Purple, never met Hurston, but she says she feels a profound connection to her. Hurston was a trained anthropologist as well as a writer, and her stories about fruit pickers and hoodoo workers in sawmill and turpentine camps create an intimate portrait of Southern Black rural life. For Walker, Hurston looms as a disciplined, loving authority figure— a grandmother of sorts for black culture who provides cultural nourishment and spiritual food. When Hurston died in 1960, her stories and books had gone out of print. Langston Hughes, who knew Hurston in the 1930s, included Hurston's The Gilded Six Bits in a 1967 anthology titled The Best Short Stories by Black Writers. Although Walker also had a story included in that volume, she says it took her years to discover Hurston's work, published just pages away from her own. Several years later, a neighbor lent Walker a copy of Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. That prompted Walker to research Hurston's life and work. In 1973, Walker came across Hurston's unmarked grave in Fort Pierce, Florida. She purchased a headstone for Hurston's tomb and had it inscribed, A Genius of the South. Later, she edited a Hurston reader, taking its title from a Hurston quote, I love myself when I am laughing and then again when I am looking mean and impressive. Though some have accused Hurston's work of portraying blacks as minstrel characters, Walker says Hurston was wildly in love with people of color and wanted to make sure that they had a foundation in their own reality. Without a foundation in our own reality, you can see this happening all the time. People don't know what to do, Walker says. They don't know what to buy. They don't know what kind of house to live in. They don't know who they are. For God's sake and for goddess's sake, appreciate who you are. There is nobody finer on this planet for you to emulate than yourself. I loved that article and highly encourage you to check out some of the other resources linked there, including the Library of Congress page on Zora Neale Hurston, which I've also linked in the show notes. You can learn more about Hurston and even listen to her speak. This woman is incredible. Her writing is beautiful and Their Eyes Were Watching God becomes somehow even more impressive when you learn that she wrote the entire first draft in just seven weeks while doing anthropological research in Haiti. 
seven weeks. Just think about that for a second. Just to give you an example of what I mean, I want you to think about famous opening lines of literature. Call me Ishmael. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And now listen to this. Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. And she continues. For some, they come in with the tide. For others, they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men. Now, women forget all those things they don't want to remember, and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. Her telling of the hurricane is just as powerful, and I'd like to share a short excerpt with you now. Sometime that night, the winds came back. Everything in the world had a strong rattle, sharp and short, like Stuby vibrating the drumhead near the edge with his fingers. By morning, Gabriel was playing the deep tones in the center of the drum. So when Janie looked out of her door, she saw the drifting mists gathered in the west, that cloud field of the sky, to arm themselves with thunders and march forth against the world. Louder and higher and lower and wider the sound and motion spread, mounting, sinking, darking. It woke up old Okeechobee and the monster began to roll in his bed, began to roll and complain like a peevish world on a grumble. The folks in the quarters and the people in the big houses further around the shore heard the big lake and wondered. The people felt uncomfortable but safe because there were the sea walls to chain the senseless monster in his bed. The folks let the people do the thinking. If the castles thought themselves secure, the cabins needn't worry. Their decision was already made as always. Chink up your cracks, shiver in your wet beds, and wait on the mercy of the Lord. The boss man might have the thing stopped before morning anyway. It is so easy to be hopeful in the daytime when you can see the things you wish on. But it was night. It stayed night. Night was striding across nothingness with the whole round world in his hands. A big burst of thunder and lightning that trampled over the roof of the house. So tea cake and motor stopped playing. Motor looked up in his angel-looking way and said, Big Massa, draw him chair upstairs. I'm glad y'all stopped that crap shooting if it wasn't for money, Janie said. Old Massa is doing his work now. Us ought to keep quiet. They huddled closer and stared at the door. They just didn't use another part of their bodies, and they didn't look at anything but the door. The time was past for asking the white folks what to look for through that door. Six eyes were questioning God. Through the screaming wind, they heard things crashing and things hurtling and dashing with unbelievable velocity. A baby rabbit, terror-ridden, squirmed through a hole in the floor and squatted off there in the shadows against the wall, seeming to know that nobody wanted its flesh at such a time. And the lake got madder and madder with only its dikes between them and him. In a little wind lull, Tea Cake touched Janie and said, I reckon you wish now you had have stayed in your big house way from such as this, don't you? Nah. Nah? Yeah, nah. People don't die till daytime come nohow. Don't care where you at. I'm with my husband in a storm, that's all. Thank you, ma'am. 
But supposing you was to die now, you wouldn't get mad at me for dragging you here? Nah. We've been together around two years. If you can see delight at daybreak, you don't care if you die at dusk. It's so many people never see, seen delight at all. I was fumbling round and God opened the door. He dropped to the floor and put his head in her lap. Well then, Janie, you meant what you you meant what you didn't say, cause I never knowed you was so satisfied with me like that. I kind of thought. The wind came back with triple fury, and put out the light for the last time. They sat in company with the others in other shanties, their eyes straining against crude walls, and their souls asking if he meant to measure their puny might against his. They seemed to be staring at the dark, but their eyes were watching God. As soon as tea cake went out, pushing wind in front of him, he saw that the wind and water had given life to lots of things that folks think of as dead, and given death to so much that had been living things. Water everywhere. Stray fish swimming in the yard. Three inches more and the water would be in the house. Already in some. He decided to try to find a car to take them out of the glades before worse things happened. He turned back to tell Janie about it so she could be ready to go. Get our insurance papers together, Janie. I'll tote my box myself in the lake and things like that. You got all the money out to dress a drawer already? Nah, get it quick and cut up piece of that tablecloth to wrap it up in. Us liable to get wet to our necks. Cut a piece of that oilcloth quick for our papers. We got to go if it ain't too late. The dish can't bear it out no longer. He snatched the oilcloth off the table and took out his knife. Janie held it straight while he slashed off a strip. But tea cake, it's too awful out there. Maybe it's better to stay in here in the wet than it is to try to... He stunned the argument with half a word. Fix, he said, and fought his way outside. He had seen more than Janie had. Janie took a big needle and ran up a longish sack, found some newspaper and wrapped up the paper money and papers and thrust them in and whipped over the open end with her needle. Before she could get it thoroughly hidden in the pocket of her overalls, tea cake burst in again. Tain't no cars, Janie. I thought not. What we going to do now? We got to walk. In all dis weather, tea cake? I don't believe I could make it out to quarters. Oh yeah, you can. Me and you and motorboat can all lock arms and hold one another down. Eh, motor? He's sleep on the bed in yonder, Janie said. Tea cake called without mo moving. Motorboat! You better get on up from there. Hell done broke loose in Georgie. This minute. How can you sleep at a time like this? Water knee deep in the yard. They stepped out in the water almost to their buttocks and managed to turn east. Tea Cake had to throw his box away, and Janie saw how it hurt him. Dodging flying missiles, floating dangers, avoiding stepping in holes, and warmed on the wind now at their backs until they gained comparatively dry land. They had to fight to keep from being pushed the wrong way and to hold together. They saw other people like themselves struggling along. A house down here and there, frightened cattle, but above all the drive of the wind and the water, and the lake. Under its multiplied roar could be heard a mighty sound of grinding rock and timber and a wail. They looked back, saw people trying to run in raging waters and screaming when they found they couldn't. A huge barrier of the makings of the dike to which the cabins had been added was rolling and tumbling forward. Ten feet higher and as far as they could see, the muttering wall advanced before the braced-up waters like a road-crusher on a cosmic scale. The monstropolis beast had left his bed. The two hundred miles an hour wind had loosed his chains. 
He seized hold of his dikes and ran forward until he met the quarters, uprooted them like grass, and rushed on after his supposed-to-be conquerors, rolling the dikes, rolling the houses, rolling the people in the houses along with other timbers. The sea was walking the earth with a heavy heel. De Lake is coming, Tea Kate gasped. De Lake, in amazed horror from motorboat. De Lake! It's coming behind us, Janie shuddered. Us can't fly. But we can still run, Tea Cake shouted, and they ran. The gushing water ran faster. The great body was held back, but rivers spouted through fissures in the rolling wall and broke like day. The three fugitives ran past another line of shanties that topped a slight rise and gained a little. They cried out as best they could, De Lake is coming! And barred doors flew open, and others joined them in flight, crying the same as they went, De Lake is coming! And the pursuing waters growled and shouted ahead, Yes, I'm coming! And those who could fled on. They made it to a tall house on a hump of ground, and Janie said, Let's stop here. I can't make it no further. I'm done. Give out. All of us is done give out, T.K. corrected. We's going inside out dis weather kill a cure. He knocked with the handle of his knife, while they leaned their faces and shoulders against the wall. He knocked once more, then he and motorboat went round to the back and forced a door. Nobody there. These people had more sense than I did, T.K. said as they dropped to the floor and lay there panting. Asada went on with Lias like he asked me. You didn't know, Janie contended. And when you don't know, you just don't know. The storms might not have come sure enough. They went to sleep promptly, but Janie woke up first. She heard the sound of rushing water and sat up. Tea cake, motorboat, the lake is coming. The lake was coming on, slower and wider, but coming. It had trampled on most of its supporting wall and lowered its front by spreading. But it came muttering and grumbling onward like a tired mammoth just the same. Maybe it won't reach here at all, Janie counseled, and if it do, maybe it won't reach to the upstairs part. Janie, Lake Okeechobee is forty miles wide and sixty miles long. That's a whole heap of water. If this wind is shoving that whole lake dis away, this house ain't nothing to swallow. Us better go. Motorboat. What you want, man? The lake is coming. Ah, uh, not nah, ain't. Yes, it is so coming. Listen, you can hear it way off. It can just come on all the way right here. Aw, oh, get up, motorboat. Let's make it to the Palm Beach Road. That's on a fill. We's pretty safe there. I'm safe here, man. Go ahead if you wants to. I'm sleepy. What you going to do with the lake reach here? Go upstairs. Supposing it come up there. Swim, man. That's all. Well, uh, goodbye, motorboat. Everything is pretty bad, you know. Us might get missed of one another. You show us a grand fin for a man to have. Goodbye, tea cake. Y'all ought to stay here and sleep, man. No use going off and leaving me like this. We don't want to. Come on with us. It might be night time when the water hem you up in here. That's how come I won't stay. Come on, man. Definitely, tea cake. My mama's house is yours. Tea cake and Janie were some distance from the house before they struck serious water. Then they had to swim a distance, and Janie could not hold up no more than a few strokes at a time, so Tea Cake bore her up till finally they hit a ridge and that led on towards the fill. It seemed to him the wind was weakening a little, so he kept looking for a place to rest and catch his breath. His wind was gone. Janie was tired and limping, but she had not had to do that hard swimming in the turbulent waters, so Tea Cake was much worse off. But they couldn't stop. 
Gaining the fill was something, but it was no guarantee. The lake was coming. They had to reach the six-mile bridge. It was high and safe, perhaps. Everybody was walking the fill. Hurrying, dragging, falling, crying, calling out names hopefully and hopelessly. Wind and rain beating on old folks and beating on babies. Tea Cake stumbled once or twice in his weariness, and Janie held him up. So they reached, so they reached the bridge at Six Mile Bend and thought to rest. But it was crowded. White people had preempted that point of elevation, and there was no more room. They could climb up one of its high sides and down the other. That was all. Miles further on, still no rest. They passed a dead man in a sitting position on a hummock, entirely surrounded by wild animals and snakes. Common danger made common friends. Nothing sought a conquest over the other. Another man clung to a cypress tree on a tiny island. A tin roof of a building hung from the branches by electric wires, and the wind swung it back and forth like a, like a mighty axe. The man dared not move a step to his right, lest this crushing blade split him open. He dared not step left, for a large rattlesnake was stretched full length with his head in the wind. There was a strip of water between the island and the fill, and the man clung to the tree and cried for help. "'The snake won't bite you!' Tea Cake yelled to him. "'He's scared to go into the coil. Scared he'll be blowed away. Step round that side and swim off!' Soon after that, Tea Cake felt he couldn't walk any more. Not right away, so he stretched alongside of the road to rest. Janie spread herself between him and the wind, and he closed his eyes and let the tiredness seep out of his limbs. On each side of the fill was a great expanse of water like lakes, water full of things living and dead, things that didn't belong in water, as far as the eye could reach, water and wind, playing upon it in fury. A large piece of tar paper roofing sailed through the air and scudded along the fill until it hung against the tree. Janie saw it with joy. That was the very thing to cover tea cake with. She could lean against it and hold it down. The wind wasn't quite so bad as it was anyway. The very thing. Poor tea cake. She crept on hands and knees to the piece of the roofing and caught hold of it by either side. Immediately the wind lifted both of them and she saw herself sailing off the fill to the right, out and out over the lashing water. She screamed terribly and released the roofing which sailed away as she plunged downward into the water. Tea cake! He heard her and sprang up. Janie was trying to swim but fighting water too hard. He saw a cow swimming slowly towards the fill in an oblique line. A massive built dog was sitting on her shoulders and shivering and growling. The cow was approaching Janie. A few strokes would bring her there. Make it to the cow and grab hold of her tail. Don't use your fate. Just your hands is enough. That's right, come on. Janie achieved the tail of the cow and lifted her head up along the cow's rump, as far as she could above water. The cow sunk a little with the added load and thrashed a moment in terror, thought she was being pulled down by a gator. Then she continued on. The dog stood up and growled like a lion, stiff standing hackles, stiff muscles, teeth uncovered as he lashed up his fury for the charge. Tea Cake split the water like an otter, opening his, life as he di- opening his knife as he dived. The dog raced down the backbone of the cow to the attack, and Janie screamed and slipped far back on the tail of the cow, just out of reach of the dog's angry jaws. He wanted to plunge in after her, but dreaded the water somehow. Tea Cake rose out of the water at the cow's rump and seized the dog by the neck. But he was a powerful dog, and Tea Cake was overtired. 
So he didn't kill the dog with one stroke as he had intended. But the dog couldn't free himself either. They fought, and somehow he managed to bite Tea Cake high up on his cheekbone once. Then Tea Cake finished him and sent him to the bottom to stay there. The cow, relieved of a great weight, was landing on the fill with Janie before Tea Cake stroked in and crawled weakly up upon the fill again. Janie began to fuss around his face where the dog had bitten him, but he said it didn't amount to anything. He'd a raised tail, though, if he'd a grabbed me an inch higher and bit me in my eye. You can't buy eyes in the store, you know. He flopped to the edge of the fill as if the storm wasn't going on at all. Let me rest a while. Then us got to make it on into town somehow. It was the next day by the sun and the clock when they reached Palm, Ble Palm Beach. It was years later by their bodies. Winters and winters of hardship and suffering. The wheel kept turning round and round. Hope, hopelessness, and despair. But the storm blew itself out as they approached the city of refuge. It's hard to imagine being in such a situation, and some of the descriptions just seem fantastical, but people really went through things like this. I have another book I'd like to share in this episode as well. Isaac's Storm by Eric Larson, perhaps best known for Devil in the White City, centers around Isaac Klein and the Galveston Hurricane of 1900. Larson is one of my favorite nonfiction writers because his works are incredibly well-researched, but read like novels. Here's an example from the opening pages of Isaac's Storm to wet, sorry, wet your appetite. September 8th, 1900. Throughout the night of Friday, September 7th, 1900, Isaac Monroe Klein found himself waking to a persistent sense of something gone wrong. It was the kind of feeling parents often experienced and one that no doubt had come to him when each of his three daughters was a baby. Each would cry, of course, and often for astounding lengths of time, tearing a seam not just through the Klein house, but also, in that day of open windows and unlocked doors, through the dew-sequined piece of his entire neighborhood. On some nights, however, the children cried only long enough to wake him and he would lie there, heart-struck, wondering what had brought him back to the world at such an unaccustomed hour. Tonight that feeling returned. Most other nights, Isaac slept soundly. He was a creature of the last turning of the centuries when sleep seemed to come more easily. Things were clear to him. He was loyal, a believer in dignity, honor, and effort. He taught Sunday school. He paid cash, a fact noted in a directory published by the Giles Mar Mercantile Agency and meant to be held in strictest confidence. The small red book fit into a vest pocket and listed nearly all of Galveston's established citizens, its police officers, bankers, waiters, clerics, tobacconists, undertakers, tycoons, and shipping agents, and rated them for creditworthiness, basing this appraisal on secret reports filed anonymously by friends and enemies. An asterisk beside a name meant trouble, inquired office, and marred the fiscal reputations of such people as Joe Amando, tamale vendor, Noah Allen, attorney, Ida Cherry, widow, and August Rolfing, house painter. Isaac Klein got the highest rating, a B, for pays well worthy of credit. In November of 1893, two years after Isaac arrived in Galveston, to open the Texas section of the new U.S. Weather Bureau, a government 
inspector wrote, I suppose there is not a man in the service on station duty who does more real work than he. He takes a remarkable degree of interest in his work and has a great pride in making his station one of the best and most important in the country as it is now. Upon first meeting Isaac, men found him to be modest and self-effacing, but those who came to know him well saw a hardness and confidence that verged on conceit. A New Orleans photographer captured this aspect in a photograph that is so good, with so much attention to the geometries of composition and light, it could be a portrait in oil. The background is black, Isaac's suit is black, his shirt is the color of bleached bone. He has a mustache and goatee and wears a straw hat, not the rigid cake plate variety, but one with a sweeping scimitar brim that imparts to him the look of a French painter or riverboat gambler. A darkness suffuses the photograph. The brim shadows the top of his face. His eyes gleam from the darkness. Most striking is the careful positioning of his hands. His right rests in his lap, gripping what could be a pair of gloves. His left is positioned in midair so that the diamond on his pinky sparks with the intensity of a star. There is a secret embedded in this photograph. For now, however, suffice it to say, the portrait suggests vanity, that Isaac was aware of himself and how he moved throughout the day, and saw himself as something bigger than a mere recorder of rainfall and temperature. He was a scientist, not some farmer who gauged the weather by aches in a rheumatoid knee. Isaac personally had encountered and explained some of the strangest atmospheric phenomena a weatherman could ever hope to experience— but also had read the works of the most celebrated meteorologist, 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 oh my goodness, I'm not even going to try, meteorologists, meteor, what? Why can't I say this word? And physical geographers of the 19th century, my apologies, Men like Henry Pittington, Matthew Fontaine Maury, William Redfield, and James Espy, and he had followed their celebrated hunt for the law of storms. He believed deeply that he understood it all. He lived in a big time, astride the changing centuries. The frontier was still a living, vivid thing, with Buffalo Bill Cody touring his Wild West show to sell out crowds around the globe, Bat Masterson, a sports writer in New Jersey, and Frank James opening the family ranch for tours at 50 cents a head. But a new America was emerging, one with big and global aspirations. Teddy Roosevelt, flanked by his Rough Riders, campaigned for the vice presidency. U.S. warships steamed to quell the boxers. There was fabulous talk of a great American-built canal that would link the Atlantic to the Pacific, a task at which Vicomte de Lesseps and the French had so catastrophically failed. The nation in 1900 was swollen with pride and technological confidence. It was a time, wrote Senator Chauncey Depew, one of the most prominent politicians of the age, when the average American felt 400% bigger than the year before. There was talk even of controlling the weather, of subduing hail with cannon blasts and igniting forest fires to bring rain. In this new age, nature itself seemed no great obstacle. Isaac's wife, Cora, lay beside him. 
She was pregnant with their fourth child, and the pregnancy had entered a difficult stretch, but now she slept peacefully, her abdomen a pale island against the darkness. The heat, no doubt, contributed to Isaac's sleeplessness. It had been a problem all week, in fact, all summer, especially for Cora, whose pregnancy had transformed her body into a furnace. Temperatures in Galveston had risen steadily since Tuesday. The heat broke 90 degrees on Thursday and hit 90 again on Friday. Moisture from weeks of heavy rain concentrated in the air until the humidity was unbearable. Earlier that week, Isaac had read in the Galveston News how a heat wave in Chicago had killed at least three people. Even the northernmost latitudes were experiencing unusual levels of warmth. For the first time in recorded history, the Bering Glacier in what eventually would become Alaska had begun to shrink, sprouting rivers, calving icebergs, and ultimately shedding 600 feet of its depth. A correspondent for the Western World magazine wrote, The summer of 1900 will be long remembered as one of the most remarkable for sustained high temperature that has been experienced for almost a generation. The prolonged heat had warmed the waters of the gulf to the temperature of a bath, a not unhappy condition for the thousands of new immigrants just arrived from Europe at the port of Galveston, known to many as the Western Ellis Island. Some camped now on the beach near the army's new gun emplacements, stealing themselves for the long journey north to open land and the riches promised them by railroads intent on populating America's vast, undeveloped prairie. In a pamphlet called Home Seekers, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe described the lush land of the Texas coast as waiting to be tickled into a laughing harvest. The railroad come-ons painted Texas as a paradise of benign weather, when, in fact, hurricanes scoured its coast, plumes of hot wind baked apples in its trees, and blue northers could drop the temperature 50 degrees in a matter of minutes. To Isaac, such quirks of weather were a fascination, and not just because he happened to be the chief weatherman in Texas. He was also a physician. He no longer saw patients, but had become a pioneer in medical climatology, the study of how weather affects people, and in this carried forth a tradition laid down by Hippocrates, who believed climate determined the character of men and nations. Hippocrates advised any physician arriving in an unfamiliar town to first examine its position with respect to the winds. As Friday night ebbed into Saturday, the air at last cooled. The sudden change in temperature would come as a delightful surprise to others in Galveston, but to Isaac it was one more flicker of trouble. He let his mind wander through the house. He heard no sound from the children's bedrooms. His eldest daughter, Allie May, was now twelve. His middle daughter, Rosemary, was eleven. His youngest, Esther Bellew, was six, but he still called her his baby. He heard nothing also from his brother, Joseph, who lived in the house. Eight years earlier, Joseph had come to work for Isaac as an assistant observer. The two men were still close, but soon any tie between them would be severed for all time, and each would pass the remainder of his life as if the other never existed. Joseph was 29. Isaac was 38. Isaac's house stood at 2511 Avenue Q, just three blocks north of the Gulf. It was four years old and replaced a previous house that had burned in a fire in November 1896. 
Isaac had ordered this house built atop a forest of stilts with the explicit goal of making it impervious to the worst storms the gulf could deliver. It had two stories with porches, or galleries, off each floor in the front and rear, and a small building in the backyard that served as a stable. The house was ideally situated. On Sundays, Isaac and his family would join the torrent of other families walking down 25th Street toward the big Victorian bathhouses built over the gulf. Sometimes they walked to Murdoch's. Other days they chose the Pagoda Company bathhouse with its two large octagonal pavilions and sloping pagoda roofs. The Kleins reached it by walking the length of a 250-foot boardwalk that began at the foot of 24th Street, rose 16 vertical feet above the beach, and ran another 110 feet out over the waves as if its builders believed they had conquered the sea for once and for all. An electric wire ran to a pole far out in the surf, where it powered a lamp suspended over the water. At night, bathers gathered like insects. Isaac heard the usual sounds that sleeping houses make, even houses as strong as his. He heard the creaking and sighing of beams, posts, and joists as the relatively new lumber of his home absorbed the moisture of the night and, re and released the last heat of day. He heard the susurrus of curtains lift, left by the breeze. There would have been mice, too, and mosquitoes. If people sought to protect themselves at all, they propped tints of fine gauze-like netting over their beds. No one had window screens. As Isaac listened, background noises came forward. One noise in particular. It was more than noise, really. If Isaac lay very still, he could feel the shock waves climb the stilts of his house, the same way he felt the vibration of the pipe organ Cora played at church each Sunday. To children in houses all along the beach, particularly the 93 children in the big, sad St. Mary's Orphanage two miles west, west at the very edge of the sea, the sound was a delight. They heard it and felt it and dreamed it. To some, each shockwave was the concussion of British artillery in the Boer War, or a ghost gun from the dead main, or perhaps the thud of an approaching giant. A welcome giant. The shuddering ground promised a delightful departure from the steamy sameness of Galveston summers, and it came with exquisite timing. Saturday. Only hours ahead lay Saturday night, the most delicious night of all. But the sound frightened Isaac. The thudding, he knew, was caused by great deep ocean swells falling upon the beach. Most days the gulf was as placid as a big lake, with surf that did not crash but rather wore itself away on the sand. The first swells had arrived Friday. Now the booming was louder and heavier, each concussion more profound. Isaac woke again at 4 a.m., but this time, the cause was obvious. His brother stood outside the bedroom door, tapping gently and calling his name. Joseph, too, had been unable to sleep. Not a terribly creative man, he described this feeling as a sense of impending disaster. He had stayed up until midnight recording weather observations from a bank of instruments mounted on the roof of the levee building, a four-story brick building in the heart of Galveston's commercial district. The barometers had captured only a slight decrease in pressure. The anemometer, 
anemometer, which caught the wind in cups mounted at opposite ends of crossed metal bars, recorded wind speeds of 11 to 19 miles an hour. It was capable of measuring velocities as high as 100 miles an hour, but conditions had never come close to testing this capacity, nor did any rational soul believe they ever would. Throughout Friday afternoon and evening, a peculiar oppressiveness had settled over the city. Temperatures remained high well into the night. None of these observations was enough by itself to raise concern. For days, however, Isaac had been receiving cables from the Weather Bureau's central office in Washington, describing a storm apparently of tropical origin that had drenched Cuba. Although Isaac did not know it, there was confusion about the storm's true course, debate as to its character. The Bureau's men in Cuba said the storm was nothing to worry about. Cuba's own weather observers, who had pioneered hurricane detection, disagreed. Conflict between both groups had grown increasingly intense, an effect of the unending campaign of Willis Moore, chief of the U.S. Weather Bureau, to exert ever more centralized control over forecasting and the issuance of storm warnings. The Bureau had long banned the use of the word tornado because it induced panic, and panic brought criticism, something the Bureau could ill afford. Earlier that week, Moore had sent Galveston a telegram asserting yet again that only headquarters could issue storm warnings. At 11.30 a.m. on Friday, Moore had sent another telegram, this one notifying Isaac and other observers of a tropical storm centered in the Gulf of Mexico, south of Louisiana, moving slowly northwest. The telegram predicted high northerly winds tonight and Saturday with probably heavy rain. Again, nothing especially worrisome. Tropical storms came ashore every summer. They brought wind and rain, even some flooding. Damage was rare. No one got hurt. But in one respect, the telegram did surprise Isaac. Until now, Moore's cables had expressed absolute confidence the storm was moving north toward the Atlantic coast. Isaac got out of bed, careful not to wake Cora. Joseph's intrusion annoyed him. There was tension between the brothers. Nothing open, at least not yet, just a persistent low-grade rivalry. He and Joseph descended to the kitchen, careful to avoid waking the children, and there, by sheer force of habit, Isaac put on a pot of coffee. They talked about the weather. A familiar dynamic emerged. Joseph, as the younger brother and junior employee eager to prove himself, made the case too strongly that something peculiar was happening and that Washington must be informed. Isaac, ever confident, told Joseph to get some sleep, that he would take over and assess the situation and, if necessary, telegraph his findings to headquarters. Isaac dressed. He stepped out onto the first floor porch. With most of the block that faced him across Avenue Q still undeveloped, he had an unobstructed view of the sky and the cityscape to the north. He saw lime-washed bungalows and elaborate three-story homes with gables, bays, and cupolas, and just beyond these, the big Rosenberg Women's Home and the Bath Avenue Public School. At the corner, to his right and across the street, stood the three-story home of the Neville family, windows open, dew and drizzle darkening its intricate slate roof. Ever since the Great Fire of 1885, 
Galveston had required that roofs be shingled with slate instead of wood as a safety precaution. But in just a few hours, the shingles from the Neville House, Isaac's House, and thousands of others throughout Galveston would begin whirling through the air with an effect that evoked for many older residents the gore-filled afternoons they spent at Chancellorsville and Antietam. Isaac harnessed his horse to a small, two-wheeled sulky that he used mostly when hunting, and with a gentle click of the reins, set out for the beach three blocks south. It was a gorgeous morning, the breeze soft and suffused with mist, jasmine, and oleander. Stratus and cumulus clouds filled most of the sky, some bellying almost to the sea. But Isaac also saw patches of dawn, blue-rimmed with cloud smoke. To his left, behind the clouds, the sun had begun to rise, and at odd moments it turned the clouds orange-gray like fire behind smoke. Seagulls hung in threes at fixed points in the sky where they rode head-on into the unaccustomed north wind, wingtips flinching for purchase. The wheels of Isaac's sulky broadcast a reassuring crunch as they moved over the pavement of crushed oyster shells. By now, the most industrious children were rising to do their chores and get them out of the way so they could go to the beach as early as possible. Everyone reveled in the refreshing coolness. Rabbi Henry Cohen was awake and preparing for Saturday's services. Dr. Samuel O. Young, an amateur meteorologist and secretary of the Galveston Cotton Exchange, was having breakfast and planning his own early morning trip to the beach. At 18th Street and Avenue O and a Half, in a small two-story rental house, Louisa Rolfing made breakfast for her husband, August, who was due downtown that morning to continue the painting of a commercial building. Louisa looked out the window and, as always, felt just a hint of disappointment, or maybe sorrow, for although she liked Galveston, she still was not used to the landscape. To her, palms and live oak did not qualify as trees. She missed the great green-black forests of her childhood home in Germany, with trees so old and large that in some places it is almost dark in daytime. Visitors approaching Galveston from the sea saw it as a brilliant swath of light between sea and sky, like mercury floating on a deep blue plain. In the summer of 1900, a boy named John W. Thomason, Jr., later to become a well-known writer of military history, arrived to spend his vacation with his grandfather in a cottage off Broadway, half a dozen blocks from Isaac Klein's office. The gulf breeze cooled the city at nightfall. One of the most beautiful beaches in the world offered delightful surf bathing, and you saw everybody there in the afternoons, bathing, promenading, or driving in carriages on the smooth, crisp sands. He left town on Saturday, September 1st, exactly a week before Isaac's trip to the beach very sad to leave. He looked back with longing as his train clicked over the long wooden trestle to the mainland and his newfound friends receded into the steam rising from Galveston Bay. That city as it was, he wrote, I never saw again, nor some of the boys and girls I knew there. Where critics most faulted Galveston was for its lack of geophysical presence. The city occupied a long, narrow island that also formed the southern boundary of Galveston Bay, spanned by three railroad trestles and a wagon bridge. 
Its highest point on Broadway was 8.7 feet above sea level. Its average altitude was half that, so low that with each one-foot increase in tide, the city lost a thousand feet of beach. Josiah Gregg, one of America's most celebrated traveler raconteurs, wrote in his diary in November 1841 of hearing about a past flood in which this island was so completely overflowed that a small vessel actually sailed out over the middle of it. He did not believe the story. He could see, however, that someday flooding might even endanger lives. Regardless of one's view, the fact was that Galveston in 1900 stood on the verge of greatness. If things continued as they were, Galveston soon would achieve the stature of New Orleans, Baltimore, or San Francisco. The New York Herald had already dubbed the city the New York of the Gulf. But city leaders also knew there was only room on the Texas coast for one great city, and that they were in a winner-take-all race against Houston, just 50 miles to the north. As of 1900, Galveston had the lead. The year before, it had become the biggest cotton port in the country and the third busiest port overall. 45 steamship lines served the city, among them the White Star Line, which provided service between Galveston and Europe, and in just over a decade would lose a great ship to hubris and ice. Consulates in the city represented 16 countries, including Russia and Japan. And Galveston's population was growing fast. On Friday, September 7th, Isaac had read in the news the first brief report on the Galveston count of the 1900 census, which found that the city had grown 30% in only 10 years. Galveston now had electric streetcars, electric lights, local and long-distance telephone service, two domestic telegraph companies, three big concert halls, and 20 hotels, the most elegant being the Tremont, south of Isaac's office with 200 ocean-facing rooms, 50 elegant rooms with private baths, and its own electric power plant. What most marked the city was money. As early as 1857, Galveston had achieved a reputation as a cosmopolitan town with a passion for fine things. One of its French chefs distinguished himself with a fusion of frontier and continental cuisine. By 1900, the city was reputed to have more millionaires per, per square mile than Newport, Rhode Island. Much of their money was vividly on display in the ornate mansions and lush gardens of Broadway, the city's premier street. The city offered everything from sex to sacks of tidal wave flour. For the grieving rich, the giant livery and funeral works of J. Levy and Brothers offered a very special option, a child's white hearse and harness with white horses. Windows were open in all the houses Isaac passed, and this imparted to the city an aura of vulnerability. Suddenly the noise of the sulky's wheels seemed more jarring than reassuring. Ordinarily, the great bathhouses at the end of the street would have brightened Isaac's mood, but today they looked swollen and worn. They floated on cushions of greenish mist like castles from the mind of Poe. Isaac drove until he had a clear view of the gulf, then stopped the sulky. He stood, pulled out his watch, and began timing the long hills of water that rolled toward the beach. 
The crests of the waves were brown with sand, but on the surface between crests, the spindrift laid intricate patterns of shocking white lace. Isaac knew the low-pressure center of the storm had to be somewhere off to his left, out in the gulf. It was a fundamental tenet of marine navigation, one he explained during a lecture at the Galveston YMCA on a Saturday evening in 1891. Large crowds gathered for such talks. They consumed the spoken word the way later men would consume television. In the northern hemisphere, Isaac told his audience, the winds of tropical cyclones always move counterclockwise around a central area of low pressure. Stand with your back to the wind, he said, and the barometer will be lower on your left than on your right. The swells came very slowly, at intervals of one to five minutes. To lay observers, this slow pace might have seemed reassuring. In fact, the slowness made the swells far more ominous, a principle Isaac only vaguely understood. Many years later, he would write, If we had known then what we know now of these swells and the tides they create, we would have known earlier the terrors of the storm which these swells told us in unerring language was coming. Isaac turned his sulky around and headed back toward his office. The breeze was now head-on and ruffled the mane of his horse. The oyster-shell paving gave way to heady wooden blocks, and these imparted to the sulky a beat like that of a swiftly moving train. The north wind brought Isaac the perfume of a waking city, the clean, almost minty smell of freshly cut lumber from the Hildenbrand planing mill, coffee from bulk roasters in the alley between mechanic and market, and always, everywhere, the scent of horses. At the levee building, Isaac walked the three flights to the bureau, stopped inside for a moment, then continued up to the roof. To the east and south he saw the sea, to the west the spires of St. Patrick's Church, still under construction. The bureau's storm flag, a single crimson square with a smaller block square at its center, rippled from a tower. The barometer showed that atmospheric pressure had fallen only slightly from the night before. Only one-tenth of an inch lower, Isaac said. Nothing in the sky, the instruments, or the cables from Washington indicated a storm of much intensity. The usual signs which herald the approach of hurricanes were not present in this case, he said. The brick dust dust sky was not in evidence in the smallest degree. Even so, the day felt wrong. Ordinarily, Offshore winds kept the surf and tides down, but now, despite the brisk north wind, both the surf and tide were rising. It was a pattern new to Isaac. He drove his sulky back to the beach. He again timed the swells. He noted their shape, their color, the arc they produced as they mounted the sand. They were heavier now and pushed seawater onto the streets closest to the beach. Isaac returned to his office and composed a telegram to the central office in Washington. He ended the telegram. Such high water with opposing winds never observed previously. Isaac's concern was tempered by his belief that no storm could do serious damage to to Galveston. He had concluded this on the basis of his own analysis of the unique geography of the Gulf and how it shaped the region's weather. 
1891, in the wake of a tropical storm that Galveston weathered handily, the editors of the Galveston News invited Isaac to appraise the city's vulnerability to extreme weather. Isaac, father of three, husband, lover, scientist, and create and creature of the new heroic American age, wrote, The opinion held by some who are unacquainted with the actual conditions of things that Galveston will at some time be seriously damaged by some such disturbance is simply an absurd delusion. At the top of the levee building, the anemometer, anemometer, oh goodness, anemometer, thank you, spun. The wind vane shifted ever so slightly. The self-recording barometer etched another tiny decline. Far out to sea, 100 miles from where Isaac stood, Captain J.W. Simmons, master of the steamship Pensacola, prayed softly to himself as horizontal spheres of rain exploded against the bridge with such force they luminesced in a billion pinpoints of light, like fireworks in a green-black sky. He had stumbled into the deadliest storm ever to target America. Within the next 24 hours, 8,000 men, women, and children in the city of Galveston would lose their lives. The city itself would lose its future. Isaac would suffer an unbearable loss, and he would wonder always if some of the blame did not belong to him. This is the story of Isaac and his time in America, the last turning of the centuries, when the hubris of men led them to believe they could disregard even nature itself. My own great-grandparents lived in Galveston at this time and were married ten days after the storm. Family lore has it that my great-grandmother's family was in the attic of their two-story pier and beam house and water had started seeping through the floor and lapping at their feet before it began to recede. Hurricanes are scary. There's a reason I live in central Texas where the weather, for the most part, is mild. Um, I have included in the show notes a couple of resources if you are interested in donating or helping out in any way for victims of Hurricane Harvey. Um, once again, this has been an episode of Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn but don't always have time to study. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, maybe tell your enemies. Um, either way, tell somebody about it. Help me get that word out and hopefully we can reach more people. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Ooh.